Happy Easter. He is risen. Sorry, I jumped the gun on that. You were still talking. My bad. I blew it. Maybe next time. Um, I'm Chris. For those of you who don't know me, I, I'm on staff with InterVarsity at Amherst College. Uh, and honestly, it's uh, a privilege and an honor to get to, to talk with you um, on Easter. What's better than Easter? It's the best. I'm, I, uh, so the staff let me pick the text for this sermon which I think they meant as a gift, but it was seriously anxiety-inducing because, like, what pressure, right? But I picked this text in large part because I think, I think in it, Peter is doing what we're trying to do this morning. And that, that is that he is, he's, he's writing about what God has done in Christ to bring life to the world, and he's celebrating it in his words. You can hear it in the text. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's language of worship. So it's like as, as he's describing the resurrection, he just can't help but praise Praise is just bursting out of his pen, as it were. Um, and, so, and so today we're going to talk about why is he celebrating? Why are we celebrating? What happened at the resurrection? What is Easter? What did the resurrection do? But before we dive really deeply into the text, um, I want to just highlight two quick things. Notice, so Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The two main metaphors that Peter uses in verses 3 and 4 are new birth and new inheritance. So if you would with me, think about um, what you did to cause your birth. Or no, uh, think about what you did to deserve your inheritance that you were born into. Obviously nothing, Right? Those are things that happened to you, happened that started you. So the point is, this is a story about what God has done to give birth and inheritance, new life, new family, new inheritance. And so um, I realize this is like a little weird for our culture, but I want to invite us to just celebrate with applause about what God has done because Easter is not primarily a religious festival or a ritual that we do. It's a celebration of what God has done to bring life to the world. So I'm going to count down from three, and then we're going to cheer for God. Does that sound okay? Three, two, one. Woo! Yeah! Woo! Yeah! Amen, amen. Woo! That worked. That worked. Amen. Our God has won. Amen? Hallelujah. So, well, the question is, what is the resurrection? What happened? What happened on Easter? Why do we celebrate it? I think Peter tells us three things. That the resurrection is the mechanism of our new birth, it's the substance of our living hope, and it's the first fruits of our perfect inheritance. The first is that it's the, the mechanism of our new birth. Um, yeah, so look, turn with me to the text if you want. I'm in First Peter. There, there are Bibles under your seats. First Peter is toward the end of the New Testament, for those who are unfamiliar with the text. Um, I'm actually just going to be in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, just two verses. So you can follow along. It should be pretty obvious what I'm pointing at in the text. But that first point is the resurrection is the mechanism of our new birth. Peter says, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection, God has caused us to be born again. So what is the re resurrection? It's the mechanism of our new birth. It's, it's, the, it's the thing that causes new birth. It's the means by which people are born again. People are remade. And in the Greek, that, that phrase, he's caused us to be born again, is really just one word. 
He's saying God has re-begotten us, reseeded us. It's reproductive language. He's, he's given us a new genesis, a new DNA, as it were. He's caused the start of a new life within his people, growing within our very bodies. By the resurrection, he is remaking, renewing, reestablishing us as people and as a people. You might recognize in Peter's language the echoes of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, talking about being born again, right? Remember the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious insider. He's a Pharisee. He knows the law. He's memorized probably all of the Torah and much of the Old Testament. He comes to Jesus at night because I think he's a little scared of being associated with Jesus. He comes to Jesus, this religious insider, and says, hey, Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, but hey, Jesus, we know, we Pharisees, we know, we think that you are sent from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. In other words, Jesus, there's something about you that's very interesting. So Nicodemus has a lot of things going for him in this moment, right? He's a religious insider. He knows the text. He's, he's like a religious authority in the community, and he's interested in Jesus. He recognizes that God is with Jesus, and Jesus just stops the conversation. You know, remember what he says? He says, unless a person is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, your religious resume doesn't impress me. It doesn't matter if you memorize the text or the creeds. It doesn't matter if you are in the synagogue every day or in church every Sunday. It doesn't matter if you've been obedient Something miraculous has to happen to you. You must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. No moral performance will do. No periodic obedience. There's no minimal list that you have to observe to be obedient enough to come into the kingdom of God. No, a miracle has to happen to you. New birth, new genesis. You must be born again. Which means you and I, as people who attend church and are interested in entering the kingdom of God, are in the same situation. We need a new birth. As, as decaying beings, people falling apart and headed toward death, we're in desperate need of a transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Something has to happen to us to bring life in our bodies, a new type of life. And nothing less than a miracle will do. We're in need of new birth. There's a, a student at Amherst, one of my friends who is a first-year student, she grew up in the church, sort of like Nicodemus, right? Religious insider, knows the stuff to say, knows that Jesus is the answer to the Sunday school questions. Um, and she has come to, come to school and found herself in deep depression, crippling depression. Can't get out of bed some days. Um, so much so that she's seriously suicidal. And she, she one day started to harm herself very seriously. And they, the, the campus, I guess, medics, Basically, they hospitalized her. They said, you're, you're such a danger to yourself. We need to keep you in a safe environment. And she can't really put this into words, but what she says is, God met me there in the psych ward at Cooley Dickinson. God showed up to me. And I, I don't know how to say it. These are her, I don't, this is not a direct quote, but I don't know how to put it into words, but all of a sudden, I knew God was with me. And something happened in me that I can't really explain. So she thought she was a Christian. And yet something miraculously changed in her heart and she's different. Not, not, I'm not saying that everything about her is fixed, right? Her de- she's still struggling with depression, and yet something has started in her. There's a new type of life growing in her after this encounter with the Holy Spirit. So the question of immediate relevance for us is, can you point to a moment or a season when something new started in you? When by the power of the Holy Spirit, you were regenerated, rebegotten, Have you received the regenerating Holy Spirit in your heart? Have you been born again?
This is precisely what Peter is talking about. Answering Jesus' question, Jesus' claim, we must be born again. Peter says, God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The resurrection is the mechanism of our new birth. What I'm saying is that the resurrection is the solution to the great problem of humanity. We needed a miracle. We couldn't save ourselves. We were in desperate need of a miracle, of a a new birth, and God has done it in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. How does the resurrection do this? Jesus, on the cross, took all of our sin and death. He actually died the death that sinners deserve so that we don't have to, so we're saved from death. And then in the resurrection, he's brought life and immortality to light in such a way that we can join in with that. You and I can find new life only in the resurrection of Jesus. There is no resurrection life. There is no new birth except for by the power of the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And we, who are united to him, can never die. He's the Spirit of life. The resurrection is the mechanism of our new birth. It's the power by which a new type of life is breaking out into the world. You ever take food coloring and drop it into a clear solution? And you watch it kind of spiral through the the solution and spread inevitably until it colors all of it? The resurrection is the first splash of color into creation. When a new type of thing started to flow. And it's swirling and spinning and swimming through all creation and bringing this colorful life to light. And and those of us in Christ have been caught up in the flow of it. Have been colored by it. And transformed by it. Covered by this flow. And we start to live into the life that Jesus purchased on the cross and displayed in his resurrection. The resurrection is the cause. The mechanism of new birth. That's the first point. The second that Peter shows us is the resurrection is the substance of our living hope. It's the mechanism of a new birth. It's also the substance of our living hope. So we've been given new life. Holy Spirit poured out can awaken us, regenerate us to new type of life. But the question remains, what is the character of a new life? What does it look like? What does it feel like to live in this new life that Jesus brings? Peter says we've been born again to a living hope. That's verse 3. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And it's weird language, right? To be born to something. We don't usually talk like that. But I think it's similar to the phrase we use about someone being born into something, right? So you would say that person was born into wealth or they were, they were born into a religious family. What we're talking about, we're, it's a defining characteristic of that familial life, right? It's the defining characteristic of that family's status quo, that type of life. And what Peter's saying is we've been born into a living hope. In other words, the defining characteristic of human existence is to be living hope. Peter says we've been born into a living hope. The status quo of the Christian family is a living hope. And why is that? Why are are Christians hopeful? I want to tell you, it's not because we believe in God in a vacuum. It's not because we just think that everything is going to work out. It's not only because we believe that Jesus' teachings are good It's not because we believe that the Bible makes nice people. It is those things, but it's not just those things. It's not not those things in a vacuum. We believe those things for concrete, historic reasons. The resurrection is the substance of our living hope. It's the resurrection that grounds and founds all of this hope. We have all of the hope that we have on the basis of the historic conviction that God has done something. God did something in space-time. God came here and in, in our world, unwound the power of death such that death is unraveling. We believe specifically that on Saturday, Jesus was a mangled corpse. His body was torn open. 
no heartbeat, no brain activity, no hope. And then sometime late Saturday night or early Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit hovered over the body of Jesus, like the Holy Spirit had hovered over the waters in Genesis, and life came into the place where death was before. Jesus, like the leader of a victory parade, walked out of the grave alive when he had been dead before. That is the substance of Christian hope. You see, what I'm saying is Christian hope is not just wishing. It's not just, it's not, yeah, it's not just a, a, a vague wish that something will happen. Our hope is demonstrated. It's a demonstrated, proven assurance that nothing can stop our God, that our God is more powerful than anything, that nothing can stand against the power of God. In Romans 8, Paul goes on this list of all the things that can't separate us from God's love. Not worldly troubles, not persecution, not affliction, not hardship, not famine or danger or armies or swords. Nothing can come between us from between us and God, not angels or demons, no sin of our past or future. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, and death is no exception. Death has been defeated. Not even death itself can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus actually saves. He actually saves, and nothing can snatch us from his hands. Christian hope is grounded on the fact that we've, we've come to believe cognitively and experientially in our bones that death is a toppled tyrant. Death is not the king. Jesus is Lord and nothing can stop him. So to all of history, therefore the arc of history bends towards Jesus' kingdom because nothing can stop his purposes. Let me ask you, what hope is like that? Demonstrated, simple, concrete. What hope? There's no, there's no, uh, there's no religion that offers that. There's no moral performance that could achieve that kind of certainty. There's no secular philosophy that's grounded like that, that's proven. This is a hope that we can live in. It's a living hope. This is a hope that we can build our lives on. There's no other hope like this. Proven, sturdy, secure. Have you ever climbed out onto a tree limb only to discover that the limb was dead? It couldn't hold you? I have. Uh, and let me tell you, it's a mistake you only make once. So this is a true story. We had a huge, uh, a, a large oak tree in the backyard of my house growing up, and it grew out kind of over our house, um, over, over a brick patio, and then over sort of toward the roof of my house. And one day, my brother and I were climbing the tree, and in my memory, we were higher than we'd ever been before. So I remember kind of thinking we're looking over the roof of my house and thinking, wow, this is like a little, a little sketchy. Um, but we're there, and I don't know the technical term, but I, I was sitting in the V of the tree, and, or one of the Vs high up in the tree, leaning back on a branch, and all of a sudden, the branch broke. And I'm, I was falling. You know that feeling? And I'm, I was grasping at the V, trying to grab, pulling off pieces of bark as I was falling back, and I kid you not, my brother climbed up into the V at the last second and grabbed the hem of my shirt and pulled me back up into the tree. I, I literally almost went to see the Lord that day in my backyard. As I was falling back, and the branch cracked. There's nothing to grab. Grasping, falling backwards. And I was scraped up. I had bloody forearms. I had bark in my, in my fingernails from trying to grab at the tree. There's nothing to support me. The truth is that some of us live our lives out on limbs that won't hold for long. 
We've made tree houses in dead trees. And we're living in structures that are unsupported, suspended over nothing but brick, acting like everything's okay. We put our hope in financial stability, telling ourselves if we can just get to this number in the bank account, or maybe it's career success, if I can get to that position, then we'll be good as a family. I'll be secure. Or maybe, it, maybe it's familial happiness that's the thing that will anchor us. So if we get our marital issues figured out and all the kids are happy and off to college, we'll be good. Or maybe you trusting, maybe we're building our hope in our own morality, right? I'm a pretty good person, and God knows I'm trying. Or I'm better than that person, right? And these are all good things, right? But they're not meant to hold our whole life in hope. They're not meant to be the hope in which we live. How long do we think that type of security will actually hold us? Six months? 60 years? If this morning you haven't centered your life on Jesus, you need to shift your weight. No other hope was meant to hold you. And even leaning on another branch, it's dangerous. Because when the day of our death comes, there's not going to be anything to grab onto. Jesus offers a hope that even death can't stop. We should never settle for such weak security when there's a death-defying king holding out his hand to us and saying, come, draw near. Build your life on me. I've defeated death. The resurrection is the solid substance of Christian hope. It's a living hope. A hope we can live on and build our lives on. And lastly, the resurrection is the first fruits of our perfect inheritance. Uh, Peter says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. First fruits is used often in the Bible. Uh, it describes the, the fruit that comes out of the very beginning of the harvest. Right? So it's the first fruits. Um, and the, the point about, the thing about first fruits is that you see it, then you know what's going to come up. So it, it clues you in on what's coming later when the full harvest comes, right? It's, a, it's a, a foretaste of what's to come. It lets you know what's coming when the harvest comes. And I'm saying that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first fruits. It's exactly that. It's the first fruits of what's coming in the later harvest. And this idea comes from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. His resurrection body is the initial crop. It's the one that clues us into what's coming in the later harvest. Now think of what you know of Jesus' resurrected body. We don't have a lot of scientific detail. I don't think that was the main priority of the gospel writers. But we know this. Jesus never sinned. Perfectly holy. Right? His, his body was totally undefiled by sin. And Jesus beat death. His body was undefeated by the grave, victorious, glorious, totally pure, blameless, eternal. That's the body of Christ. And let me read Peter's description of this inheritance that we have. I'm going to insert some synonyms into the Greek to help us get the sense of what's, what is coming to us, this inheritance that we have, just so you can feel the weight of this. You get the sense that Peter's sort of running out of adjectives. He can't even describe it fully enough. He says it's imperishable. Or it's, it's immortal, undying, not subject to decay. It doesn't go bad, this inheritance that we get. It's undefiled, pure, 
clean, unstained, perfect, beautiful. It's unfading. It's enduring. It's not going anywhere. And it's kept in heaven for you. Held in heaven for you. Maintained, protected, watched, secure. Now this word heaven, we say it's kept in heaven for you. We, this word heaven is so familiar to us that we've sort of lost its actual meaning altogether. One commentator says we should think of heaven less as the, the place to which we'll go when we die and more as the storehouse of all of God's blessing waiting to be poured out on the earth when Jesus comes again in the full harvest. The storehouse of blessing waiting to be poured out. Shalom, justice, all manner of goodness. Our risen king himself, Jesus, is coming back. That's our inheritance. Waiting to be poured out. Imperishable unfading, undefiled, kept, beautiful, immortal, permanent, secure. What adjectives would you even want to add to that? Do you see, that Jesus, do you see why Jesus' body is the first fruits of our inheritance? The resurrection is what clues us in on what's coming in the later harvest, and that day is coming when Jesus comes back bringing the full blessing of the storehouse of heaven to renew creation. The resurrection is the first fruits of our perfect inheritance. So Easter is a day to celebrate what God has done. It's a celebration, first and foremost, of what God has done. And Easter centers us in the story in which we're living. We're living between resurrection and resurrection. Right? Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. He's defeated death, and the victory is won. He's, already, he's our parade leader, our victory parade leader. He's leading us in this new life. And a further resurrection is coming when you and I, those, those who are dead in Christ, will be raised and transformed into the likeness of his flesh. The day of our bodily resurrection is coming when we will be made like him. Amen. Amen. So he, he has given us a new life, and right now we, we can be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, given a new seed. And then from the new seed, we're given a, a, a living hope into which we grow, where the shape of our life starts to look like this hope that Jesus has won. And even, even all, the, all the while, we're looking forward. Those of us who have tasted the first fruits of the harvest are looking forward to the day of fullness, when the harvest is poured out. All of that, our new life, this living hope, our new inheritance is achieved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And all of it was given to us because Jesus chose to die for us. All of this new life came because Jesus poured out his own life. That's what we remember at communion, right? Jesus taking the body, taking his, the bread and saying, this is my body and it's going to be broken for you. I'm going to be crushed and broken so that you can be whole and alive. He said, take this, all of you, eat it in remembrance of me. And then he took the, his, the, the wine. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant. It's going to be spilled. It's going to be poured out so that the Holy Spirit can be poured out on all creation and bring life. And he said, drink this, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion as recognition of the fact that we, there's no life that we can manufacture. What we need is a miraculous intervention from Jesus, and God has done that on Easter for us. And so we're going to take communion as a celebration of that fact. I also want to tell you that as we're doing this, there'll be people in the back who would love to pray, you, pray with you. I'll be one of them. And if, as I was talking about uh, being born again, this new birth, if that's something that you've never experienced, Jesus says, unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. If that's something that you're not sure that's happened to you or you just want to talk to someone about it, I invite you to come do that, process that in the back. I'll be back there. Uh, and then similarly, if you realize this morning 
that you are living your life centered on a, a hope that can't hold you. And you need to shift your weight onto the resurrected, demonstrated hope of Jesus. I would love to pray with you back then, back there. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion. God, we, we acknowledge and confess that we could never have saved ourselves. Lord, nothing we could do could bring new life in our own hearts, and you alone have done it. God, we thank you that you have made a way for us to know you and for us to find life. And God, I just pray that you would help us, each of us individually, to find life in you today. Whether it's for the first time, uh, seeking that new birth, praying for you to come regenerate our hearts, or whether it's realizing that we've been living out on dead limbs. Lord, steer us toward you. Steer us towards the life that you offer. We want to live for you. And God, I just pray that you make this communion an awesome celebration of your grace and your victory. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you rose for us. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.